0: Well guys, it is great to see all of you here this morning. Um, We started a brand new series last week, um, a a series that we called The Compassionate God. And last week was a bit of an introduction. We were trying to kind of set the table for this series um, by getting to know our God correctly and uh, just trying to see the compassion that he has towards us. And hopefully you were able to see what an amazing God we serve. Um, He is a compassionate God. He is a gracious God. He is slow to anger. He is overflowing with love and faithfulness. And we briefly looked at uh, what that means, and hopefully it encouraged you. But we really zeroed in on compassion, and we saw that the Hebrew word for for compassion was linked to the word womb, which when we took time to look at it, makes total sense, because the compassion of our God to us is likened to a relationship between a mother and her child. And we all know that the bond of a mother and her child is beyond words. Um, And last week we mentioned how we might know all this to be true, but it's really hard for us to put it on. Uh, It's hard for us to believe that it's true for me. And so we sit in our prison cell and we look out at all the goodness of God, but we just don't believe it's for us to experience It might be for everybody else, but not for us. And our hope is that through this series, God can begin to change that in us, okay? Now, the point of this series is not only to get to know God so that we can experience this full relationship with, with God that's available to us, but we also have a secondary purpose that we need to add to it, okay? The point of us getting to know God correctly is that we then might begin to live our lives accordingly, In other words, we want our lives to model the God that we serve. Um, There's a verse in Ephesians which we've talked about before. I'm just gonna refresh our memory with it. Ephesians five, the very beginning part of verse one. It says, be imitators of God as dearly loved, what? Children. Children, okay, do you see that? As dearly loved children. Let me ask you a question. Who do children want to imitate? Their parents, right? I remember when we were all kids, we all wanted to imitate our mom and dad. I remember when I was just a little boy, I wanted to be exactly like my dad. I wanted so bad to imitate him. Um, I remember he would wear his watch where the face was here at the wrist, rather than here. And he claims that it was, he's a pilot, and it was a lot easier for him to just look down like that and see what time it is, rather than to have to go through the whole rigmarole of doing this. And I don't know why, but I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so I'm wearing my watch, and people would make fun of me, and I didn't care. Was just, I'm being like my dad. I remember my, my dad, uh, <clears throat> he didn't drink coffee. He couldn't stand coffee. And so for a long time, I didn't drink coffee because my dad didn't drink coffee. Come to find out, my dad's missing out, man. I don't know why. I, I love <laughs> coffee now. But I, I, I wanted to be like dad. And that, that's I would walk around with, he was a pilot, so I would walk around with his helmet a lot just because I wanted to imitate him. <clears throat> Another thing my dad would do, which I always thought was a cool thing and I couldn't wait to do it, he would, you know, the inspection plates on an airplane, he with one hand with the screwdriver be like with a hand, and I would try it over and over because I wanted to be like him. And just the other day, I was screwing, you know, screwing the screw out with one hand, I'm like, hmm, see, just like dad, man, just like that. But we wanna imitate him. And this passage is telling us that we should imitate our heavenly father to become like him. And the point of this series is that when we start to see what our heavenly father is like, we will then start to imitate him and become like him. Now, we have a wonderful advantage over our brothers and sisters from the Old Testament, okay? We actually have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, many of you guys know this verse, but it goes, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers or our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, okay? But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Now, pay attention to verse three. It says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the what? exact representation of his being. Jesus is the exact representation of the heavenly father. He is just like God the father. He was the perfect example of him. In other words, he was God in the flesh. So by looking at Jesus, who do we get a perfect picture of? God the father, exactly. We look at his example, we see what the father is like. Now, we all get that, I believe, for the most part. But what I, fail, what I fear that we fail to see is this direction. Let me kind of explain. Jesus is here. He came to this earth to represent what the Father is like. Okay, So he perfectly modeled the Father so that when we look at Jesus, we see what God the Father is like. But another thing that Jesus did that we fail to realize is that he came to model what a human being is meant to look like. So in other words, when we look at Jesus's life, what he's demonstrating to us is this is what a human being is meant to live like. Okay, now we miss that. Because so often what we say is, well, I'm only human. And when we say that phrase, what has just happened? Yeah, we just made a mistake. We just failed miserably. And so somebody's like, well, I can't believe you did that. And we go, well, I'm only human. Forgive me, I'm only human. What we're trying to say is, I make mistakes all the time because I'm human. What we should say is, I'm only (laughs) subhuman because Jesus is showing us that, no, this is what a human being is meant to look like. This is what a human being can be like. And it makes complete sense because we were created in the image of who? God the Father. So when we imitate Jesus and we begin to live like him, like a true human, we then, who are are we imaging? God the Father. And that's what it was supposed to be like from the very beginning. Okay. Now, here's the cool thing. We've been given the Holy Spirit that helps us, that empowers us to do exactly that. So we aren't left helpless in this whole journey. Okay. So in this series, we're going to look at what God is like, We're then gonna look at the example of Jesus and how he imitated that perfectly. And then we're gonna look at how we can do the same thing by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, I'm not sure, but every topic that we cover may end up being a two-weeker, okay? This week's topic is most definitely gonna be a two-weeker. And I'm anticipating that probably every topic is gonna be that as we focus on God's compassion. But we're gonna look at what God's like we're going to look at how we can experience that, how we can step out of our prison cell to experience it. Then we're going to follow week, we're going to look at Jesus' perfect example of it, and then how we are to live that out ourselves, okay? That's the plan. Everybody with me? Okay, what I want us to focus on today, the topic I want us to look at today is God's forgiveness, okay? The forgiveness of our God. Our compassionate God is a forgiving God. And I think a lot of times when we think about God the Father, often we think he's an angry God. Especially when we look at the Old Testament, we often look like, man, he was ticked off all the time. This guy was in a bad mood. okay? And we always think of him as an angry God. Well, hopefully today you will see that that is just not the truth. He was incredibly patient and an incredibly forgiving God. okay? And I'm going to share some examples. But let's back up and let's start talking about the Israelites. you remember when the Israelites kind of moved down or... Uh, the family, the Israelite family, moved down to Egypt and they began to grow and grow and grow and, and, and multiply into millions of people, so much so that the pharaoh began to look around and go, sweet daddy, these guys are, you know, they're getting so big that if they want to turn against us, they could conquer us. And so this pharaoh goes, all right, let's enslave them. And they turned them into slaves, And they were just beating them mercilessly and just a horrible lifestyle. Not only that, whenever a little baby boy was born, they would slaughter it. They would kill it because they didn't want the 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 you know the israelites to grow even bigger. And so this is a hor- horrible horrible situation and they began to cry out to God and say God come rescue us. Well God heard their prayer and he sent Moses to be the one that he's the instrument he's going to use to rescue them from this captivity. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he's like Pharaoh God says to let his people go and Pharaoh's like why should I? And so God then begins to move into to try to break Pharaoh's hardened heart, he moves into, he pours out 10 what on Egypt? 10 plagues, horrible plagues. Like the first plague he did was water into blood. Can you imagine? That's disgusting. But that's what it was like, water into blood. Okay, now right there, if I were Pharaoh, I'd go, all right, done, I give up, white flag. But Pharaoh had a hardened heart, so he then sent a whole plague of frogs into the land. Now, I had this morning, interestingly enough, I'm driving, it was raining, and I'm cruising on F, and this one frog jumps into my headlights, and he's like flying, and I'm like, ah, and it just cleared my truck as I went over. I'm like, right, you live today, but uh, imagine I'm just, thousands of them all over, in the truck with me, that's what it was like, okay? Then came lice, and I was gonna ask, how many of you guys had lice before, but I thought, that's kind of a personal question, let's not ask that. (laughs) But I hear it's horrible, so if you had it, I'm sorry. Flies was the next plague. Can you imagine flies all over the place? Guys, if there's one bug I despise, other than cockroaches, is flies. I hate flies. In fact, somebody told me, I don't know if it's true, and I need to look this up, because I would eat more food, but if a fly lands on my food, I've heard that they throw up a little bit, and then they lick their vomit up and the food, and I'm like, that's disgusting! And so when a fly lands on my food, I'm like, okay, I'll take that piece off and put it over there because I'm not going to eat fly vomit. But imagine all over the place, flies just invading the land. Then, you know, Pharaoh still had a hardened heart. Then came all of the Egyptians' livestock were dying, okay? Not the, not the Israelites, but the Egyptians. Then came boils. How many of you guys had a boil before? Not many. Okay, I grew up in Columbia. I had tons of them. I don't know why, but I had boils all over my body a lot of times, and they are so painful. Everybody had them. Then hail began to ruin the crops. Then came another plague of locusts. Then darkness filled the land. Then the last plague was the firstborn child of any family who didn't put the blood of a perfect lamb over their doorposts, that firstborn son would die. God so powerfully worked that the Egyptians literally kicked the Israelites out of their land. They were like, get out of here. Please, just get out of here. Okay, you know what? Take our gold, take our silver, take our jewels, take it all, just get out of here. We don't want you here. I mean, it was incredible how God worked that all out. And so the Israelites, they leave the land, they are freed from slavery, and God had orchestrated everything, and every single one of the Israelites saw it happen. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Luke, what does this have to do with forgiveness? Let me show you. The Israelites are heading to the promised land. Now, it's the promised land that God had promised them. He said, this is a land I have reserved for you, and I'm gonna bring you to the promised land. I will drive out your enemies. It's gonna be awesome. So he's leading them through the wilderness to go to that promised land. So they leave Egypt. 25 days later, they end up in front of the Red Sea. And as they get to the Red Sea, you know, they obviously can't cross it, so they're facing it. And guess who shows up behind behind them? The Egyptian army. I mean, they are right hot on their tail. And you would think that the Israelites would go, so what? I mean, God rescued us from Egypt already. He's done all these miraculous things. We'll just trust them to somehow work another miracle, and we will be free. We don't need to worry about it, guys. But is that what they did? No, they whined and complained. I'm like, way to go, God. Bring us all the way out here to just die by the Egyptians' hands. Way to go. Well, we all know what happened. God miraculously spread open the Red Sea so that they crossed over on dry land. An amazing thing. They celebrated. They're like, wow, God, you're amazing. Two days later, they come to this land where this, this water, it's Mara, and it's, it was bitter waters. They came and they wanted to drink, and they're like, oh, this water's disgusting. Way to go, God! Bring us all the way out here to drink bitter water, and we're gonna die of thirst. Not cool. And so God miraculously turns that bitter water into great water for them to drink, and he performs another miracle for his children. Then they come to the desert, and once again, they're complaining, they're saying, we don't have enough food. Way to go, God! You bring us all the way out here so that we starve? At least back in Egypt we had onions and all these delicious little herbs and stuff and spices to eat, not out here. So God miraculously pours manna down from heaven upon them for them to eat. Then they begin to complain that they don't, they have too much manna and not enough meat. And so God pours out quail to be able to tell them to have meat to be able to eat. Then they come to another place Oh, actually, God told him, he says, when you collect the manna, only collect enough for one day. Don't go hogging and try to collect for two days. Well, they disobeyed him on that. Then he also said, do not collect manna on the Sabbath. Collect enough for the Sabbath on the day before, but don't go collecting on the Sabbath. Well, they went and disobeyed him on that. Then they come to this place, another place called Rephidim, where there wasn't any water, and they're like, way to go, God, we're gonna die of thirst. And once again, God miraculously provides water coming out of a rock. Then they get to Mount Sinai. And you think at this point, God would be like, you know what, I'm done. But no, they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses is up meeting with God. That's where the Ten Commandments are, you know, being put on stone. And they're down the mountain, in the valley, guess what they begin to do? Worship a golden calf. They start to engage in idolatry. And, and it's so bad, it's like they've forgotten about God, and they start worshiping idols. Then they come to a place called Taborah, and at this point, it's just plain old complaining. They're just like, this place, this stinks. We are just suffering so much, this is ridiculous, and they're complaining and complaining. They come to another place, they're complaining about not having enough food, or they're complaining about, you know, only manna and we're sick of quail. I mean, just complaining complaining. God keeps providing for them over and over and over, and many times, I mean all the times really, miraculously to where they could sit back and go, wow, that's our God. And yet they continue to complain. Parents, let me ask you something. What is one thing with our children that can get super under our skin? Whining. Whining and complaining. I hate it. I one time made these pork, I got these pork chops, and I sauteed them in a frying pan, you know, put some little seasoned salt on it, and then I dumped uh, Campbell's mushroom soup on it and kind of let it simmer in that and put it over rice. I know, it's not some organic, healthy little thing, but it it was delicious. And uh, my kids were like, Dad, this is awesome. This is really good. And I'm like, yeah, all right, cool. So I began to make it, you know, once a week or so, because it was easy to do. Guess what my kids started doing? Oh, we're having pork chops again? This is ridiculous, Dad. Is that all you know how to make? Oh, I'm getting so saying they'd leave it on their plate, and I'm like, you know what? I'm sick of this. I would just get ticked. I'm like, you can make your own meal if that's how you're going to be. I can't imagine how God is handling these Israelites, but he is. Now, we come to a situation where they reached the promised land. Okay, this is where God's bringing them. He rescued them out of Egypt to come to the promised land. They are there. Moses sends out a bunch of spies to go check out the land. Did you see what they're up against? They come back from spying and 10 of them are like, there is no stinking way we're gonna be able to take over this land. There's giants in the land. The, The cities, the walls are fortified. We cannot win this battle. It is not going to happen. We cannot take this promised land. There were two spies named Caleb and Joshua where they stood up before the whole assembly and they said, no, what are you talking about? Yes, we can. Our God says that he will go before us, he will knock down our enemies, and we've seen it all in the past of what he's done for us. We'll know who do, we know he'll do it for us in the future. And they're trying to stand up and say, guys, we can do this. Well, the whole assembly gets so ticked off that guess what they want to do to Caleb and Joshua? They want to stone them. They're like, don't tell us this. And they get all mad. Numbers 14, it says, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. But then guess who shows up? Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? How long? Will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the things that I've performed among them? You know what? I'm gonna strike them down with a plague and I'm gonna destroy them. And I'll make you, Moses, into a greater nation than they were. God is ticked. Now remember how last week we talked about God is slow to anger? And guys, he truthfully is. We're talking about a two-year period of these people whining and complaining. He does get angry, but it takes a lot for him to get there. Well, he's finally there. He's ticked off. He's had enough of these people complaining, and he's had enough of their unbelief. I mean, what does it take to get these people to appreciate him and to believe in him? Well, he's had it, and so he decides that he's going to destroy them. He's gonna give them what they deserve, and they do deserve it. But Moses steps up to the plate, and look at what he says. He basically repeats last week's verse to God. And he says, God, the Lord is slow to anger. He's abounding or overflowing in love and forgiving forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, O God, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. I love this. Moses reminds God of what he's like. He says, God, you yourself told me that you're slow to anger. You abound in love. You forgive sin and you forgive rebellion. That's what you do and it's incredible. Now, yes, you don't let sin go unpunished. Yes, there are consequences to sin. In fact, the consequences go to the children of those parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, you guys probably hear that and go, what in the world is that all about? And I wanna real quickly just pause from our sermon and kind of talk about that because I had a question last week and I think we do need to address it. But what does it mean that God punishes sin to the third and fourth generation? Does that mean that if my grandfather sinned, I carry his guilt? Does that mean that I have to pay the penalty for his sin? Is that what it's saying? Well, Without spending a lot of time of it on that, no, I don't think that's what it's saying because there are passages that clearly say that's not the case. I don't believe that it's the guilt of a father's sin, nor do I believe that it's the penalty of that father's sin that gets passed on to the third and fourth generation. What I believe is that it is the consequences of that sin. It is the natural consequences of sin that is seen in the succeeding generations. Now, what are natural consequences of sin, you may ask? Well, I believe that there could be a number of things, but one thing for sure is it can be the, na- the natural consequences can affect our genetics. Genetic consequences of sin can get passed on to children. As crazy as it may seem, sin affects us genetically. Habits can get burnt into us genetically. A child of an alcoholic has to be careful that he or she doesn't become an alcoholic themselves because the propensity of becoming one is far greater. It is a reality. And those natural consequences that get passed down, those tendencies or those inclinations are passed on through the genetics from a parent to a child. And we see that all the time, we just don't really think about it. Like when you go to the doctor, they will ask you, just recently went to the doctor and they said, Um, Is there cancer in your family? Is there heart disease in your family? They're asking, is there diabetes in your family? All these things that get passed down are natural consequences of sin being passed down to the third and fourth generation. We're not carrying the guilt of our parents. We're not paying the penalty of their sins. We're carrying the consequences of them. Now, Here's the beauty of it. You might think, well that's kind of mean of God to do that. But here's how awesome God is. When someone walks in holiness and someone walks in righteousness, guess how much the consequences are better, yet the blessings of that, guess how many generations it passes on? To a thousand generations. When we walk in holiness and righteousness, it affects our kids and it genetically impacts them all the way down for up to a thousand generations. And I think that's an awesome thing that God does for us. So I hope that kind of helps us kind of look at that passage a little differently. Anyways, back to the sermon, Moses is pleading with God to show compassion and forgive these people of their sin. And he says, God, according to your great love, forgive these people. You've forgiven them many times since Egypt, so please forgive them again. Now, do they deserve it, second service? No, not at all. I mean these are some of the most complaining, whining, unbelieving people you've ever seen. They're never thankful for what God and what he's doing. They simply complain and complain. There's always something to complain about. And I can tell you that if I were God, I would have wiped my hands of him way long time ago. But Moses pleads with God on the people's behalf and notice what he says, according to your great love. He doesn't come to God and say, God, they're good people. I mean, they're really nice. You're just getting a bad side of them right now. No, he goes, according to your great love. It has nothing to do with the people. It has everything to do with God's great love. Well, guess what God's great love does? Verse 20, the Lord replied, I've forgiven him, just as you've asked. Now, we gloss over that verse, but we need to sit back and go, wait, what, what in the world, you've forgiven them? But look at what all they did. Look at how they complained and whined and didn't believe you and actually mocked you and then they get to the promised land and they basically thumb their nose at you and say, no God, we're not going in. Why in the world will you forgive them? Because I'm a compassionate, forgiving God, that's why. Do they deserve it? No, but I'm a forgiving God. That is who I am, that is what I am, that is my nature, to forgive. Our compassionate God is a forgiving God, amen? Amen. Guys, I'm telling you, there is instance after instance after instance of God being forgiving to people who certainly don't deserve it in the Old Testament. He forgives them, because that's who he is. In Psalms, there are some beautiful verses describing our forgiving God. Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that because we wouldn't be here today. Notice how far he puts away our sins, as far as the east is from the west. Now notice it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. You ever thought about that? Because if I'm on planet Earth and I go north all the way to the North Pole, if I keep going, where do I go? I start going south again. So there is a distance between north and south, from the top of the planet to the bottom of the planet. But if I go east on planet Earth, how far can I go? I just keep going east, keep going east, keep going east. And if I go west, how far can I go? I can keep going west, keep going west. That's how far he has put our sins, our transgressions away from us, amen? Our compassionate God is a forgiving God. You know what that means? That means that God will forgive you. I don't care what you've done I don't care how wicked of a thing it was, God will forgive you. Now I know, I know our prison thinking really messes with that. Because we just can't believe that. We've done way too much wrong. Too many really bad things. There's no way that God will forgive us. There's no way that we deserve his forgiveness. And you know what? You'd be right. But because we think we don't deserve it, we refuse it. We reject God's forgiveness because we don't deserve it. And I've found that often we do our best to just not think about our sins. We try not to think about our failures. We try not to think about our horrific blunders. And we're just gonna live our life. And because we don't like to think about them, we often don't acknowledge them. We just keep them hidden. We don't confess them to God or anyone else. We kind of think that if we don't talk about them, we don't think about them, it's not going to affect us. Well, guess what? We know better, don't we? And the enemy would want nothing more. It does affect us. And the main way it affects us is we don't experience the forgiveness of God. And that can be a devastating consequence. If we don't experience the forgiveness of God, the enemy will continue to let us experience the shame and guilt of our sin, and he won't let up, I promise you. And often, when we live in shame and guilt, we end up running even into more sin and more wickedness in our life to try to numb that shame and guilt, and it becomes a vicious cycle. Guys, we need to be able to confess our sins to God and repent before our holy God. With confession comes forgiveness and healing. In 1 John 1, 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, do you remember what faithfulness means? Remember last week we talked about it? Faithfulness means reliable so if we confess our sins he is reliable we can count on him to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness tell me second service how much unrighteousness how much does that leave out none so i don't care what you've done there is no sin there is no unrighteousness that god's forgiveness doesn't wipe clean and purify us from purifies us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know there are some who look at this verse saying we don't need to confess our sins to God. He already knows them and he already has forgiven them, so we don't need to confess them, we just, that's just something that we don't need to do. We can just by faith claim that he's already forgiven all of our sins and that's how we live our life. And while that may somewhat have a logical argument to it, the pattern that I see in scripture is a person realizing that his or her he he or she has sinned before the Lord and they come to the Lord in full repentance confessing their sins to him. I think of the story of Jesus talking about that Pharisee and the publican or that tax collector. And the Pharisee stands up and he's praying this illustrious prayer to the Father and you know at the end he walks away Well, this tax collector, he falls on his face prostrate before the Lord, and he's laying there, and he doesn't even look up to the heavens because he doesn't believe he's worthy of it. And he says, God, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. Jesus says that man walked away forgiven that day. Of course, God knows our sins. But there's something powerful for us to come forth in humility and confess our sins to God. It is an act of agreeing that we've sinned against him. It's our saying, God, you're right, I'm wrong. And when we do that, his forgiveness is offered to us. It's just—it's there waiting to just flood us. And we don't have to ask for his forgiveness. We simply confess the sins to him. The, The forgiveness floods right naturally. And there's healing in that. In another passage, in James, it says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There are some of you sitting here today living with a crushing sense of guilt and shame because of your actions. And you've kept it hidden. You didn't want anybody to know about it. You want to keep it secret. Well, guess what? It's the secret that gives it power. Confess it. Let me tell you something, God's forgiveness is a great place for the community to operate together. There have been multiple times in my life where I've met with a brother and I've confessed my sins out loud to them. And they have lovingly in prayer taken me to the throne of grace and allowed me to experience the forgiveness of God just wash over me and it's been powerful. And it's done in community. I would encourage you to invite someone into your prison cell and just share. Confess it. Get it out into the light. Confess it before God and man because confession brings healing. There is forgiveness available to you. Stop rejecting it. Our God is a forgiving God. You don't have to keep carrying your sins. You don't have to keep trying to hide them and ignore them and manage them. Receive God's forgiveness and get out of your prison cell, amen? Amen. All right, I'm gonna give us some homework during this series. And these are ways that we can put into action what we're learning. And this week's homework is two simple things that are not so simple. I would encourage you, if you are one of those people that you just have this, this thing that's just eating you alive, find someone you trust and confess your ugly hidden sin that you have been hiding and ashamed of for so long. Now, when you read that, instantly there's many of us and there a go, oh, I do not want to do that. I'd rather just keep it hidden. Don't do that. Bring it out into the light. Make it lose its power. Ask that person to pray with you and ask God to wash his forgiveness over you in a way that you feel it and experience it. So those of you who are praying for the person, take them through that process for 1 John 1, 9. And ask God to just wash his forgiveness over them. Now, if somebody comes to you and you know, kind of opens up to you, please keep it confidential. This is between you, them, and God. Don't open it to anybody else. Secondly, I would encourage you to write out a letter of thankfulness to God for his forgiveness. Be personal with God. Share your heart with him and thank him for it, okay? At the end of the service, some people are gonna come up here and to be open, ready for you to pray for anyone who wants that. And I would encourage many of you who are here today to come forward and be prayed for because you may be sitting here with this kind of just lock like, I am not going to do this. I'd encourage you, come up, have these people pray for you that God would give you the courage to move forward and be set free. Okay? So just pray about it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you, God, that you are a forgiving God. God, it blows our mind how forgiving you are. You forgive us over and over and over and over, day after day. You are incredibly patient. You are slow to anger. God, I pray for those of us who are still sitting in our prison cells, and because we know we don't deserve this, we reject your forgiveness. I pray that you would allow us to come forward and to just release this burden that we've been carrying for so long. Bring it out into the light and receive your forgiveness. May you do a mighty work in our midst, I pray. In the name of Jesus, let it be so. Amen. Guys, love you very, very much. Have an amazing week. And if anybody needs to be prayed for, please come up. We'll see you next Sunday.